Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Are the Chinese religious? The government's treatment of Christians and particularly Muslims have been under scrutiny in recent years, to say the least. But these religious groups only form around 4% of the Chinese population, according to national surveys. So what do the other 96% believe in? The CCP itself is famously atheist, but that doesn't mean the society is faithless. In particular, Buddhism, Taoism and Confucianism have grown together over the centuries to provide what the Chinese call Sanjiaohe three teachings harmonious as one, and these continue to influence Chinese life as one. Growing up, I never knew which part of my temple visit belonged to which faith. One social scientist has described the Chinese faith as an empty bowl, which can be variously filled. So on this episode of Chinese Whispers, we'll be taking a look at what the three teachings teach and how they've become perhaps more cultural practices than religious in modern China. Now, there's a lot to talk about, so first up, I have to admit defeat. This episode will be more on the beliefs and practices themselves and less on the communist government's treatment of them, which is plenty to talk about for a whole other episode, at least. So watch a space for episode two on this topic, where we'll be discussing the persecution of the Falun Gong, the 90s Buddhist sect, the growing control under Xi Jinping, and moments where the central government actually find it convenient to encourage indigenous religion. So for now, what the teachings teach, joining me on this podcast to discuss that is Mark Muhlenbeld, Associate Professor at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University, who's an expert on Chinese folk religion. So Mark, I wonder if we can start by first talking about that mix of the three teachings. What does it mean for the Chinese to believe in all three things and how does that transpire in, in your everyday life? So, you know, when I, when I teach courses on Chinese religion, I always tell my students that the first thing to realize is that there is no such thing as a monotheistic mindset So in China, right? So you can, one day you visit the Buddhist neighborhood temple, the next day you go to a Taoist temple, and the day after you engage in some activity that is completely in line with what Confucianism would, would advocate. So there is no such thing as a pure ideology in that sense. How, how did that come about then, that mix? Can you give us a brief history of when each of these things you know, came into the mainstream? Because Confucianism and Taoism, can they be considered indigenous to China? And then Buddhism came in from, from India? Definitely, definitely, yeah. So Confucianism, I would say in many ways, Taoists have always been Confucians too, right? What, what Confucianism stands for, this kind of family ideology and the morality that comes with it, for example, to be respectful towards your seniors, and the seniors would include your father, your parents, your grandparents, uh, would also include the family ancestors, would also include the king or the emperor, etc., right? So that is all respect towards your ancestors, towards your seniors. So that kind of uh, mentality is, is also very perfectly valid within Taoism. They would, they would, in that sense, be Confucians too. 
And it, you could even say because of that, Confucians don't really have a Confucian ideology, but they just represent something that is very Chinese. And nowadays we call that Confucianism. Taoism, for example, is something that has emerged not from one spot, not one origin, but has it's sort of an amalgam. It represents different local traditions and different local knowledges, different local ideas about the world, and that sort of coalesced into a coherent ideology. With, with Confucianism, it's different because it really has always been associated with, let's say, the rituals that were performed at the courts of the kings. In that sense, it was very much representing, let's say, a, a political ideology. And of course, the first spokesman that made this into something that people remember because of his or his disciples' writings is Confucius, Kongzi, right? So with Confucianism, it's more determined by a number of individuals that we now remember in history, like Kongzi and some, some people like Mengzi, uh, Mencius, and much later, the Neo-Confucians like Zhu Xi, so these are sort of defining people within that tradition. With Taoism, it has always been more locally oriented. Uh, there's always a big influx from different regions, different localities. Buddhism, when it was introduced to China, roughly in the second century of the Common Era, Buddhism had the problem of not being able to speak Chinese, right? They How to translate their complicated concepts into something that people would understand. So the first thing that they did was actually use Taoist language. So you find that early Buddhism looks a lot like Taoism. And of course, early Buddhists, therefore, because they had to distinguish themselves from Taoists, they mocked Taoists a lot. There's a lot of anti-Taoist rhetoric. But because they sold themselves within Taoist language, I think it has also facilitated their acceptance within the broader realm of, of Chinese uh, religious life because they chose something that was familiar but let's not make it too complicated. But, but basically, that's, that's what it is. Things started to mix. There were points of conversion and there were points of difference. And that has always remained the case. But I would say that every of the three teachings has some core values that they will always be self-conscious of. And there's a lot of sort of peripheral ideas that could be Taoist, could be Buddhist, could be Confucian. And what are the central beliefs of these three teachings? If you don't mind, I would avoid the the idea of beliefs. Uh, I would try to okay. instead describe a little bit the kind of responsibilities or duties or the kind of division of labor that has come into being among the, let's call them the three teachings, right? Confucianism, Taoism and Buddhism. And of course, there are beliefs and, and ideas related to those. But I think they sort of become evident as you understand what they try to take care of. So with Confucianism, I would say very generally, there is a core interest in managing human hierarchies, and that would include the family, uh, very much family oriented. And because of its focus on the family, it would automatically also include the ancestors. So there's a lot of debates within Confucianism about the morality related to the family and taking care of the ancestors and how to, and that's very important, although it's nowadays forgotten or bracketed out, how to sacrifice to them correctly. So 
the spirits of the ancestors, they used to be a very important presence within the family in traditional China. And now, now of course, it has become much more sidelined and more symbolic in a way. But Confucianism used to have their own priesthood. Buddhism, uh, my next candidate, would really be a group or a religion, if you like. The term religion is, is problematic, but that's for another discussion. Um, <laughs> Buddhism is an institution that takes care of people's karma. And, you know, the original Indian idea of, of karma, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar, I think most people will be familiar with the, with the idea of karma, which is the merit that you accumulate over uh, many different lifespans. And in the original Indian iteration of it, karma would be something that is very abstract. Uh, you don't really see it or you cannot really understand it. You only know it in your next life when you're reborn, either in a better way as a, as a, as a rich person or as a god or in a, in a terrible way if you're reborn as a, as a being in hell, for example. Then you know the result of your karma. In China, this was different. In China, Buddhism developed into a very bureaucratic system, and I should have added that about Confucianism, that Confucianism is also a very bureaucratic system. And in fact, they, of course, as, as, as you and many people will know, they represented the imperial bureaucracy. And the model of bureaucracy was important for Confucianism, but was also important in Buddhism, where the idea of karma got tagged onto it. And if you would, if you would die and you go to hell... Uh, everybody would, after they die, they would go to hell. Uh, not a very pleasant idea. But the first stage is to appear before a judge in the courts of hell. And those judges, they would have, and this is something that uh, surely you would have read in The Journey to the West, where the monkey king makes a journey into hell. And he appears before the judges in a very different way than we, the way that we would do. Because when we appear for a judge in hell, the judge will have a register and it is all neatly spelled out, our karma <laughs> points, basically. And then we will know our next destiny uh, and our punishment, because you'll, you'll be punished and tortured a little bit, you know, not very pleasant. And of course, the Monkey King in Journey to the West, that famous novel, the Monkey King is much more abrasive and he demands that his records are stricken so that he'll be reborn never again but he will be living forever right so that's in people's imagination that is a very important thing this idea of a record of karma now Taoism so Confucianism would be human hierarchies and human bureaucracy Buddhism would be in between using the bureaucracy using bureaucratic ideas to measure and mete out karma Taoism then would manage divine hierarchies. So Taoism also would be structured along the lines of their own kind of bureaucracy. You would have sort of Taoist officials that would be the equals of gods. And you have, you have you know, a different sort of a parallel hierarchy, parallel bureaucracy to the Confucian, the visible, the human bureaucracy. And when you say Taoism has that reflection of the bureaucracy on earth, they have it in heaven. Is that is that the idea that they've got you know the sky king and then you've got all the other you know minor officials as well reflected? But it's like a pantheon of deities. Yeah, it, it extends into heaven. It goes beyond heaven. So so this is why I emphasize with Confucianism the human hierarchy. With Taoism, it's not in fact not just a divine hierarchy, but beyond that, Taoism is in the in the Chinese traditional imagination the only 
ideology or the only body of practice, if you like, that also claims that they can affect or that they can manage or that they can extend into the beyond that transcends our imagination, that transcends our world, that transcends our common perception. So basically, that's the division of labor of these three ancient teachings. And is there a space for what we might call pagan religion, i.e. religion that doesn't come from any of Buddhism, Taoism or Confucianism? One figure that I think I'm thinking of particularly is Chang'e, the moon goddess who China's moon missions are now named after. She's this goddess who lives on the moon, having been a human in the first part of her life. And she's the reason that we eat mooncakes. But she's not clearly not a Buddhist figure. So, I mean, are there lots of these mythologies that come about outside of these three teachings as well? Well, Chang'e is a, an interesting example because, and there's many, many myths like hers, as with Greek mythology, an important source of people's, let's say, core guidelines were not on earth, but were in the sky, right? When it became dark, uh, when there were no city lights to, uh, to obscure the view of the sky, you could see the stars and stars, planets were used for measuring time. So super important, but also, uh, you know, this wealth of, of constellations and, and patterns in the sky also gave rise to an extensive mythology, or I shouldn't say it gave rise to, people had their own myths that they attached to what they saw in the sky. This happened in Greece, it happened in China, and Chang'e is just one of those, one of those examples that is neither Confucian, Buddhism, Taoist, whatever, but is just one of those very ancient myths that existed before you have these named ideologies. And if listeners at this point are confused, just imagine how confused I was as a child growing up in China, hearing, taking in all of these different influences of different types of theism, not quite understanding how they all related to each other. And I, you already mentioned, Mark, Journey to the West, one of the four classical novels in China, Xiuji. And I think that just embodies how confusing the entire system is because the story is of this Buddhist monk who goes on a journey to obtain sutras from the west of China, i.e. India. Protected by a monkey king who learns the way of the Tao, they encounter demons and animal spirits on the way who want to commit cannibalism and eat the monk. I mean, it's a great story, but an utter mess when it comes to all of these beliefs because it just kind of mixes it all together in one pod, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. Which also makes it's it a, really... a great story. I mean, to me, it really epitomizes the kind of spirit of, of not being a monotheistic environment. So on the one hand, the journey to West, as you nicely summarized just now, is a story where the basic idea comes from a Buddhist episode in, uh, in Chinese history where this monk actually did exist and he actually did go to the Western territories, roughly today's Kandara to get Buddhist scriptures. So that did happen. Of course, all these things that were imagined into it later, they didn't happen. But the funny thing is that, so this was a, a Buddhist hero, more or less, but in Journey to the West, he becomes this, this very weak figure who needs the help of a strong spirit, which is the Monkey King, who is also sort of, he represents the local spirit that you would encounter everywhere in China. So I think people would be able to relate to the Monkey King because they would see that kind of figures all around them in their own village, in their own neighborhood, etc. What do you mean by that, see, see that figure? Well, so as I just said earlier, that religious 
institutions, the temple or a shrine, would be at the center of people's life, at the center of communities, literally. Uh, so markets would be built around temples, for example. You would have, I, I think I would not be exaggerating if I said that every community in traditional China was originally built around a local landmark. And that could be a rock. And for example, the Monkey King is born from a rock, right? Could be a tree, could be a river, a mountain, a hill, a cliff, etc. So these would be, in every imaginable community, the local cult, the local cult of worship, the local saint. People would imagine that this figure would protect them, would right. would would grant them, you know, uh, exorcist power against uh, demonic intrusions, would be able to help them with getting rain, would cure diseases. This would be the spirit of a community to which they would turn for, for all such matters. And so this is also a reason that nowadays, you know, with Chinese cities, they have been completely overhauled. The old neighborhoods are gone. The old shrines are gone. The old temples are gone. That means that the traditional form of Chinese, of Chinese religion has basically disappeared from cities. If you go to villages, you will still find a lot of that. Although, of course, even villages have largely been restructured, redrawn, yeah. uh, etc. Yeah. yeah, and increasingly the villages are being moved into the cities as their villages are yep. restructured. You know, that's really interesting, Mark, what you've just said, because it reminds me of the films of Studio Ghibli, that Japanese film studio. I don't know if you are a fan of animated films, but, you know, it might be quite interesting for you, is that this Japanese film studio in their animated stories often draw on the theme of a place of nature being destroyed by urbanization and then the spirit of the place of it might be a river or a forest then gets displaced and then the story goes from there so i guess on that point how much influence does this bizarre pantheon this mix have on the rest of east asia because journey to the west has been made into tv shows and video games and cartoons throughout not just in china but throughout east asia that's really interesting, very broad question. Before I answer it or try to answer, can I ask you, you were just referring to a studio. Is it also, are they also the producers of Princess Mononoke? Is that, is it that studio? Yes, or? exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, which, you know, draw on these themes of conservationism. And, you know, when urbanization happens, these ancient spirits get disturbed. Right. I, I think I have to rewatch those uh, with a different mindset. So, yeah, in, in, in Japan, you have these yokai. I don't know if you've heard of, of them. That's basically the Japanese term for yaoguai. Ah, demons. Yeah, demons or, or evil specters or, or strange manifestations, something like that. So these are really, like in China, you will find them in Japan. You will find them certainly in the whole Sinophone, Sinophone world. They would include Korea also. And in different versions, you would find it, I think, also in, in South Asia, Southeast Asia. So... Yes, that, that's a type of, of really local communal spirit. You know, the interesting thing is to call it a demon is really an outsider's perspective. So you have to understand that for these local communities, these would be bona fide gods. This is what they worship. And of course, there's a reciprocal relationship. And in the extreme cases, there might be even the sacrificial offering of a, of a human being. So of, of course, there were, there were extremes. But on the other hand, to call them demons is really 
sort of uh, uh, the perspective of the central government or of more orthodox institutions who believe that there is a certain set of bona fide divinities that should be recognized and anything that deviates from that uh, is automatically an evil demon. So that also sort of characterizes the the relationship between the center and the periphery or nowadays even the city and the farmland, the, the rural hinterland, yeah. So Mark, earlier you drew parallel between what we're talking about and the Greek pantheon. And obviously the Greek pantheon, the Greek mythology, is now obsolete as a religion. And a lot of what we're talking about does seem pretty ancient stuff. So how much do modern Chinese people believe in that stuff? And especially after the last 200 years of turmoil? Well, it depends who you ask. If you ask most people in the city, they will say probably that Confucianism is still very much important. But... You know, after the modernization of China with the fall of the Qing dynasty, you know, there was uh, an intellectual reconceptualization of Confucianism as a philosophy. So, you know, the religious side of Confucianism has disappeared and has not just disappeared in practice, but also from people's imagination. They never thought it would have been possible even to have that side to Confucianism. So there is the the ideology of Confucianism, the morality that still alive or or referred to at least i think there's still many people maybe you know from your own background people who will uh, participate in ancestor worship so that still exists even even in the cities but if you go to and and of course it depends which which region but if you go to uh, the rural areas you'll find a much more vibrant a much more variegated kind of religious life with many of the old rituals still being alive, festivals to local saints still being alive. If you compare that to to the cities, you know, there is, in, in many of the bigger cities, you will have a Taoist monastery or a Buddhist monastery. But these are really frequented by people who have a sort of individual modern needs, for example, uh, they want their son to pass for the exams. Uh, they hope for offspring, you know, things things like that, which is a very limited range of, of needs. And it's really needs. It's really not it's really not so much about belief or, or morality or faith. All, all these things are less relevant. It's really about that kind of stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, the the monastic tradition in China always has been the minority tradition. So most religious activities, most religious phenomena would be practiced by people who do not live in monasteries. So, you know, what people see in cities nowadays of of religion also has changed. They see it as something that is limited to a very small number of dedicated, almost self-flagellating kind of uh, people who have very little ties to society. That, That used to be very different. But religion has been you could say has been cornered in a way has been uh, put in a in a very limited amount of, of of space and what people experience of it nowadays in their lives i think is also very limited if they don't seek it out if they don't go to a monastery it's very unlikely they will even notice there is such a thing as as religion still in china yeah, that's really interesting. And there's that phrase, which is hugging the Buddha's feet at the last moment, which is an idiom to say, okay, now you're, I often get told that I do that when I'm cramming for an exam, for example. But, you know, people will go to the temple 
the day before they have a big event that they want to then go get the Buddha's blessing for. Which, in and of itself, you know, that's not really how Buddhism is worshipped anyway, is it? Because it seems like quite a, you know, does the Buddha answer prayers? I mean, that already seems like a kind of bastardization of Buddhism. Well, that's something that many people have spilled a lot of ink on and have hot debates about. In fact, yes, that's something that is not foreign to Buddhism at all. You know, again, I just said this thing about Confucianism, how it has been reimagined or reconceptualized as a philosophy. And the same thing has happened with, with Buddhism. And Buddhists themselves, as the Confucians, they've also happily contributed to that idea that Buddhism is a philosophy and not some sort of superstition or some sort of backward religious activity. But in fact, yes, the Buddha from the very beginning was thought to answer prayers, uh, to respond to prayers, etc. So, you know, this idea of, of hugging the Buddha's feet at the last moment, I think is less a deviation of what it means to do religious practice in China in relation to Buddhism, then it probably means that you are not in usual life very dedicated, but only in certain moments. I think I think that's it. Yeah, and it's interesting how much people actually believe versus paying lip service or doing going through the motions, because you, you mentioned ancestor worship. My family, we still go to do tomb sweeping, Qingmingjie, which is an annual festival near, around Easter time in the spring, where you go to your ancestors' graves, you clear it up, and then you burn some paper money in the thought that they're going to get it in the afterlife, whatever you burn. And what's funny is that in recent years, you've had not just paper money, but paper cars, paper phones, paper iPads, <laughs> all of these modern luxuries that you're burning for your granddad. Yeah, yeah. Which just is, <laughs> I guess that's just the way that the faith has developed throughout China's history, that it's moved with the times. And when I asked my grandma, you know, do you actually believe that my granddad is receiving all of this stuff? She's like, well, you know, maybe he is, maybe he's not, but why don't you, you know, what's the harm in doing it anyway? That's the thing, of course. You you better make sure that no possible solution is, is omitted. And, you know, of course, burning a paper version of iPads or cell phones uh, or of a Rolls Royce, etc., that is modern. But the idea of having objects, valuable objects, made in a paper representation that you then burn with the idea that it will be transformed into something else or in, into that object in the other world, that, that's not new. That's very old. But... What happens nowadays, I'm not so sure in, in, in China, though, but I've heard this from Taiwan, that there is an environmentalist movement against it, saying that now in these temples or monasteries is no longer allowed to burn paper objects or paper money because, first of all, the waste of paper, but second of all, of course, the, the pollution of the smoke and the contribution to global warming, etc. So I think, and I think that's a very good evolution. Oh, I have to disagree with you there, Mark, because I think the pollution that you're doing there must be so little compared to the pollution of other industrial things. Of course, of course, of course. As a family, it's really important because it's one of the only occasions when the extended family, because you're worshipping such long-ago ancestors, your great-aunts and great-uncles, then it becomes more of a social thing to keep in touch with your extended family. And that ritual is really important, especially for the older generations. Of course, but let's be honest about it. The... The social interaction does not depend on the amount of paper that you burn, right? <laughs> well, granddad might say otherwise. <laughs> of course, of course. And by the way, if, if you don't mind me pointing this out, you know, earlier before we started the interview, you were saying <clears throat> that you know that 
people in your environment, but in general, people in China, perhaps when they go to a temple, what they do really is uh, bowing down or burning some incense without really knowing why they do it or what's yes. the ideology behind it. And that's similar to what your granddad would say about, about the paper money. It really doesn't necessarily matter why you do it. The importance really lies in doing it. It's important that you keep certain practices alive, certain habits alive. And in doing so, you keep society alive. You keep, you keep each other wholesome, I guess. Uh, so to me, that, that makes sense. You don't always have to know why you do it, but there is a certain effect in what you do that you can actually see. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, just to press, press you on this urban-rural divide that yeah. you've um, mentioned, why is it that religion has faded in city life? Is it because of better education or more westernized education? Or is it because of the pressures of modern life that you don't have so much time for it? What is the reason for that, do you think? Actually, all of the above and, and more. As I, as I mentioned also earlier, one of the important things why religion has disappeared from the cities as opposed to from rural areas is that cities have been completely reinvented. Uh, the old neighborhood structure with the neighborhood temple and the neighborhood priest and the neighborhood festival and ritual, etc., all that is gone, right? So the traditional forms and structures in which people were situated in, in religion, they're all gone. So from that perspective, it's to be expected that cities are, are different. But education certainly is another reason, although, you know, this is a, a tricky issue, a thorny issue. To me, being told that religion is something that is useless or that should be replaced by scientific uh, thoughts is not necessarily an improvement. I mean, you can have a long debate about that, but the bottom line is people haven't abandoned religion because they realized that science is better, but because they were told that science is better, right? That's a difference. And so if you go to villages, the funny thing is they have the same kind of language. So I, I will ask them about their practices. And then they would, for example, say here in our village, we don't have religion. We only have superstition. You know, and they think they think that because this is a, a government, basically, you can say a government kind of uh, distinction between good religion and bad superstition. And even though the government says it's bad, they still do it because that's what they've always done. And, you know, nowadays from these villages in rural areas, the younger people, they have less prospects of economic prosperity. So they go to the cities. Uh, which means that a lot of the old traditions simply die out because only old people do it. And the old people, well, they die. So there is that aspect too, even though there's an urban-rural divide. But even in rural areas, religion is slowly disappearing. Yeah, well, that, that distinction between religion and superstition is really interesting because this, the word mi-sing in Chinese, you know, it's being used by the government to, as you say, literally categorize what's good and what's bad. But is that just completely arbitrary in your mind that actually all of it belongs to a similar tradition, historically speaking? Yes, I think there's, there's a, a continuity between the lowest local and, and most limited kind of religious phenomenon. Also, what we talked earlier about these spirits of local landmarks that are bona fide gods in the eyes of the locals, but that would be categorized as uh, heterodox evil demons by, by government officials. So if you for a moment forget about the government classification, there is simply a continuum that emerges from these local 
communities, these local cults, and go all the way up into the the highest reaches of the most popular, most famous gods of China that are still worshipped uh, nowadays and that are also deemed bona fide by whatever official would nowadays speak about those. Not many uh, officials would, would touch upon religion like that, but there are certain gods like, you know, Guanyin, the Bodhisattva Guanyin, or Guan Yu, the, the hero of the Three Kingdoms, uh, the martial hero, or Mazu, you know, the, the goddess of the of the of the sea. These are very famous, very popular gods. But these two started out originally in a small locality as local gods and actually as as phenomena that were not recognized by by the government at that time. So there is no categorical difference. Uh, there's no categorical difference between rural and urban. These things are all basically part of the same system. You mentioned earlier that at the turn of the century, after the Qing Dynasty, Confucianism really was, um, I can't remember if you said pushed away or something like that, but I wanted to talk a little bit about that period of time because we've had um, Professor Rana Mitter on before, who is the historian of China for the 20th century, talking about the May 4th movement. And in that episode, he was talking about these ideas of Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy and going against these sort of traditional Confucian ideas. So was there quite a moment in the modernization of China when there was not just dying out of these religions, not just urbanization, but conscious grassroots pushing away of the traditions? Of course, yeah, of course. With the end of the empire, but even before that, there was a strong movement, especially nurtured by people who originally would have associated with the Confucian tradition, Let's call them, for convenience sake, Confucian intellectuals. And these were, these were very much infatuated by Western ideas. You know, when I teach students about the modernization of China in that time, I don't call it modernization. I, I tell them modernization is Westernization. And there was a very strong belief that all these Western categories, like philosophy, like literature, like arts, you know, all these things that are basically taught in, in departments at, at universities these days, that these were things that China should also have. So there was a very broad attempt to try to fit whatever China had into those categories. And everything that didn't fit, for example, the neighborhood temple or the spirit medium uh, who would have revelations from the gods, things like that, they would not fit and they would be deemed inappropriate and they would indeed be pushed away. Uh, there was a strong movement after the fall of the Qing dynasty, first by the Republican governments. It was not just the communist government, it was also the Republican governments who were very strongly anti what they called superstition. And partly, you know, you can see this as an ideological thing, as a modernization thing. But really, it's also because, as I said earlier, with a society where religion, temples, is the center of the community, if you can make sure that that center is taken over, right? If you own that center, or if you push it away, it means you own that community. So then you can actually govern them. Then you can make sure that there is no distraction from any other power in the locality, but it's all focused towards the central government. I think that is really what happened at the end of the Qing dynasty into the Republican era and then later in the communist era.
Well, in the Republican era as well, quite a few leading politicians of that time were Christians too, weren't they, because of the Western influence. So this is where you get outward external competition as well. And I don't know, is it unfair of me to say that this is part of a Chongyang Meiwei, so a West-worshipping moment for these Westernized politicians who wanted China to modernize and in their mind was, okay, we're going to believe in one God now and that is the Christian God and we're going to brush away all of these old fusty Chinese beliefs. Of course, you know, at that time, what became fashionable, you know, steered from from academia outwards, but into society and into the thinking of people was the idea of evolution. You know, Darwin started his idea of evolution, but this was an idea taken over by pretty much every other discipline of, of thought. So people also thought with religion, there needs to be an evolution. And apparently in the West that, that evolution has taken place and there now is only one God out of all these many gods that used to exist. And those Westerners, they have done so well. You know, they're clean, uh, they have great technology, they have uh, powerful guns, etc. So Christianity must be great. You know, and I, I say it a bit ironically, but on the other hand, if you imagine that many of those reformers at the time, they actually studied abroad. So they studied in Europe, in the United States, some of them in Japan, and they became acquainted with different forms of, of community, different forms of, you know, being together. And I think at that time, being together in a church, that was something new and something pleasant, singing songs together. I imagine that those intellectuals who became Christians were not just modernizers in that sense, but they were simply, they were also infatuated with that sense of community. It's not just the Tung Yang Mei Wai, what you say, uh, the, the looking up yeah. to Westerners, but it, it's, it's also really that sense of community, I imagine, that they found and, and wanted to perpetuate. Professor Mark Muhlenbaud, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. You're welcome. Very nice conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.